Beijing to New York, Jerusalem to Washington, and from Doha to Riyadh, the world is echoing a single message, a two-state solution for Israel and Palestine. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is back in the region this evening, unveiling a five-point plan to ensure Palestinian statehood after the war is over. That's tonight's On Narrative. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Narrative. Amid the graphic war reporting and the mounting death toll, a momentous shift towards peace is happening in the Middle East. Israel and Palestine seem to be on the road to a two-state solution, with a lot of encouragement from President Joe Biden's administration. Six more Israeli hostages have just been freed from Gaza, the latest group in ongoing ceasefire talks. In total, Israel has secured the release of 120 citizens from Hamas captivity. Yet over 75 Israelis and four Thai nationals still remain held in Gaza following the October 7 attacks. As negotiations continue, we're learning distressing details of what hostages endured, injuries and branding among them. The staged release of hostages comes as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warns Israel it cannot do in the south of Gaza what it did in the north. Lincoln is encouraging both sides to prevent further violence, although he says that Israel cannot resume its ground invasion unless safe zones are established. I'm joined tonight by Rick Petrie, an international investment banker and Council of Foreign Relations member. He's got tremendous expertise in the region and will discuss the latest on the hostage releases, ceasefire talks and prospects for peace between Israel and Palestine. We've now had eight additional hostages in the process of being handed over to Israel in what was another successful day in the prisoner swap. What's your take on uh, how things have gone since the hostage exchange deal was announced last week until now? I'm relieved and I share in the joy of all of the families who are now receiving their loved ones back. And I just hope that as many, if not all of the people who have been taken and who remain in Gaza will get out. And the sort of uber-optimistic hope would be that the break in the rhythm of the Israeli campaign in the northern Gaza that has been achieved through this ceasefire and the hostage release can somehow <clears throat> be maintained and that in that quiet period, some fruitful talks can at least begin as to what the way forward is here in the region. Yeah, of course, we are hearing that two of the hostages will not be coming home. They're, they're now believed dead, although we're not quite sure that they died on the way there or how those deaths happened, but they've added to the death toll. And it's, we're also hearing very horrific accounts of the hostage, the way they were treated inside those tunnels. There was one incident where one of the hostages had an injury to her arm and she was treated by a vet who they had to look after her. She's very pale and weak after all of that. She's deeply traumatized. There's also the branding of some of the hostages by motorcycle exhaust parts that they used to brand the hostages so they would be able to identify them on the way. Personally, in terms of my own intake of uh, those kinds of stories about mistreatment, I'm cautious about coming to a firm view as to what may or may not have happened simply because I'm well aware, as, as I'm sure you are and, and everyone else is, that there's a, a great potential here for disinformation on both sides. So I think eventually the true state of affairs or the, the true facts will emerge.
and we'll all be able to form our views at that point. But we see kumbaya kind of videos of handshaking and embracing uh, between captors and captives as they climb into their Red Cross vans to be taken out. Those kinds of things also I don't credit or give any great weight to at this point. There may be later some stories told by some of the hostages that they were well-treated. You know, yeah. and then people will start to talk about Stockholm syndrome and all that kind of thing. We're just still very close to it all. And I think it's too early to form any real view as to what the care and treatment of these captives has been. Indeed, that's a very good point of caution there. And also it's worth noting that the, the handover has been going well on both sides. But we look at the images we just looked at are from Israelis returning to their side and also there's Palestinian prisoners that are being returned to Gaza and to Ramallah. And they seem to be doing, they're being welcomed as well by their families. We have to remember there's families on both sides. And on each side, there will, there's obvious joy at the return of their family members. And it's something very maybe necessary in the Israeli Middle East peace process that this sort of happens, that we see this day by day sort of exchange of, of prisoners. Maybe that's just one of the necessary steps on the way to peace. Uh, one side story to the release of Israeli prisoners, that is prisoners of Israel, held by Israel is that I saw a very interesting article, I think it was by Dan Seidman, who writes in the Jerusalem Post um, today, about the scale of the Israeli incursion that has happened over the last 24, 48 hours in Jenin. And the arrest there of a number of Palestinians, which virtually equates to or cancels out the numbers who have been released through the hostage exchange program. Um, Israeli jails are still full, I'm afraid. Yeah. And the violence continues. There was another attack in, in Jerusalem today by a uh, terrorist. There's, this is yeah. a very volatile situation. But I'm going to add a little bit of optimism to this conversation because I thought Blinken arrived this evening to Tel Aviv and it was quite forceful, it appears, with the prime minister telling Bibi Netanyahu that they can't go into the southern part of, of Gaza where a lot of the people who evacuated from the northern part, there's now two million people in the southern part. And he basically has told Bibi Netanyahu that they cannot be as thorough, as, I don't know if that's the right word, as, as murderous as they have been in, in, in the Northwood. I think they've had 15,000 casualties so far, which is just, that can't be repeated in the South, obviously. It can't continue. The entire world is condemning that kind of activity. And it's also just terrifying Jews around the world because it's building up for all these anti-Semitic attacks that are happening and all this anti-Semitic sentiment that is happening. Blinken's probably going at this from both perspectives there. It's a question to me whether Bibi Netanyahu will listen to him. Do you think he will? No, it's a very big question. First of all, my personal view is that Bibi will not survive in power once the fighting is finished. I don't know exactly by what means he will be toppled, but I don't think that over the next months and years that I think uh, we're now facing in terms of the diplomatic and political processes that are required to put in place, finally, a just and lasting peace. Um, I don't think that Bibi is going to be the chief interlocutor for all of the international parties who are concerned, including, not least, the U.S. But to your question directly, um, I don't think that Bibi uh, will be very sympathetic to the message being sent by Blinken. And I think that his, his attitude in that regard is stiffened by the politics of his current situation in which he's not a captive of and certainly heavily dependent on 
a variety of very right-wing and settler-orientated political parties in Israel. The, the Smotrich serving as finance minister at the moment, Ben Gavir in um, some uh, national security or defense position, which is a little vaguely defined. These kinds of people have devoted lifetimes to not merely quelling or neutering Palestinian political power, both in Gaza and in the West Bank, but have very actively been pursuing what I think I personally regard as, and I think it's now widely recognized as, a process of purging what the international community calls the occupied territories and evicting as many Palestinians as possible and creating facts on the ground in the form of Israeli settlements, which will make the creation of a separate Palestinian state impossible and infeasible. I think that's absolutely right. There's no ways that government can continue with their extremist policies, which, yeah. are, as you point out, are basically ethnic cleansing. And I think we've seen an upsurge of that activity. Blinken is, at the same time as he cautions about Israeli conduct in the south of Gaza, he's also had things to say about the way in which the Israeli state is operating in the West Bank. It's not unreasonable to suppose that it might be in the interests of the Smotriches and the Ben Gavirs to push the Palestinians in the West Bank into such a tight corner and to wield the hammer so heavily that there'll be some pushback, there'll be some reaction, it'll be a kind of provocation. And that might then open the doors to even further Israeli action in the West Bank. I don't think any of this is very mysterious at this point. I think it's quite clear that, first of all, I think they feel that they're in a limited window of time before international pressures are brought to bear and they're dashing for daylight to accomplish as much as they can in terms of eviction of Palestinian families and whole villages and the creation of new settlements to the extent they can. The key point there was that Bibi cannot continue. It looks like the polling numbers that he's performing under right now don't indicate much broad support anymore and none of the partners want to dance with him anymore and he certainly can't continue with that coalition government. It's interesting to hear you say that. You don't see Bibi continuing. Now, Blinken arrived this evening and made a speech, which I thought was more profound than people have been uh, saying. In fact, maybe these people haven't yet picked up on it, but it is, in my opinion, he's laid out a, a sort of a five-point plan here towards a two-state solution, which is another thing we've been hearing a lot of in the last few days, two-state solutions from the Chinese. That's really what they said they were supporting. The UAE is now out in favor saying two-state solution is the only solution that exists. We're seeing a lot of, that's a term which, as you and I both know, has not been used very much recently in Israel, is now back in vogue. And here is Blinken's five-point plan. It's, he didn't call it that five-point plan, but this is what it reads like. Israel must improve the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza in immediate, tangible ways. A lot of the owners there in Israel. Palestinians must have a credible path towards statehood. And it's, the, the wording there actually says, you know, that Israel must provide the Palestinians with a credible path towards statehood. The U.S. has suggested practical steps, although it doesn't indicate what they are, that can be taken towards this end. And then number four, which is quite a big uh, ask here, is that a revitalized Palestinian authority, that's basically the West Bank Palestinian government, will govern both the West Bank and the Gaza. And uh, number five, that Ramallah, that same government, must reform itself, limit corruption or end corruption, and promote a free press that has become far more democratic informed than they have been. 
First of all, blinking these five points and Blinken's whole address this evening is really only an attempt to put meat on the bones of something which Biden himself has said in the last 48 hours, which is a clear and unequivocal positioning of the United States in favor of a two-state solution. Now, as to Blinken's specific points, the one that gives me the most pause, not as to the good faith or spirit in which it's articulated, but as to its practicability, is number four. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true to say, and I've heard certainly a representative sample of resident Palestinians saying this, that the Palestinian Authority is widely viewed among Palestinians as having collaborated with Israel. And therefore, the legitimacy of the, as the focus of everyone's attention in trying to put in place the rudiments of a sustainable Palestinian government, whether the Palestinian Authority will um, command the respect and loyalty of the broad mass of Palestinians is something about which I think at least there is a question mark. Uh, the big quandary that we all face as we set out on the road to a two-state solution is how and around whom will Palestinians find a government and leaders who aren't tainted by the past, who aren't enormously corrupt in a variety of ways, and who have genuinely the public welfare at heart in terms of what they want to do with the power they're given. Yeah, that is, of course, the biggest question. And what happens to Hamas? They've got to agree to this. They've got to walk away from this somehow and be made whole, however they would be made whole, I don't know. But they, they would view themselves as the legitimate government of Gaza and would certainly be as equally interested in running the Palestinian Authority if they could too. They have to convince them to walk away. And maybe that's been baked into this deal. I don't know. But that's probably the, that's a difficult conversation. Of course, the other difficult one is that some of the potential leaders in the new Palestinian Authority or the revitalized Palestinian Authority are in Israeli jails. It's something which I expect to be floated and I would regret it is if in order to find leaders not tainted by the past, etc., there's the sort of search for um, impressive Western-oriented Palestinians sourced in Washington, D.C., London, etc., as we did in trying to construct a post-Saddam, um, there's a knee-jerk reaction is all the guys on the ground are dirty or incompetent or mistrusted by their people. So we need to parachute in some squad of guys who have been hanging out in think tanks in Washington, D.C. And that's unworkable and it's just not legitimate. It needs some brains to be able to to think about the long-term development of these areas. It seems to me that you've got Gaza. This is just this is perhaps a little callous to talk about it, but Gaza is probably some of the most prized beachfront property in the, along the Mediterranean. You've got, I'm sure there are many developers in, in maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe those kinds of countries that are thinking, well, this is, this is prime real estate. We can develop this into something pretty spectacular. Not to mention the oil around there. We can talk about that as well, but you've got potential there for what is going to need to be a large investment of rebuilding this area. But what are you going to rebuild it into? And are you going to be able to create these large economic ventures that really provide 
for the population of Gaza and Palestine and create jobs and create development, create ownership. That's really the dream, right? And ultimately it has got to come along with, you've got the right to vote. It's got to be, here's some, here's some ways to live. Sure. That kind of big thinking that maybe only comes from Saudi Arabia, maybe Dubai, those kinds of like broad, different ways of approaching things. Maybe that could be really interesting in this regard. First of all, I'm not against importation of Palestinian talent. The, the, the Palestinian diaspora is very large and very talented. If you move in financial and banking and accounting and legal circles throughout the Middle East, but you are almost inevitably dealing at senior levels now with very talented Palestinians. Yeah. So the there clearly is a brain bank to be tapped. I'm simply saying that that's how to, that the, the tapping of that talent has to somehow come organically from within the Palestinian people rather than being imposed sort of Sykes-Pico style uh, from the seventh floor of the State Department. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very astute. That, that would be colonialism all over again. That's exactly what you want to avoid. So, and we have, we, we, unfortunately, we have a recent history of having done that. Let's talk a little bit about the oil because that is an opportunity for everybody. And as I look at the, I think it was the energy secretary who was parachuted into Gaza last week of all times to talk about the energy deals and talk about Gaza's incredible oil supply. But there's also this other pipeline that's being developed from Eilat to Ashkelon. I'm sure more about this than I do, but it seems to me like that's that pipeline, which is meant to distribute oil from Saudi Arabia and the UAE all the way through to Europe, basically, and even Russia uh, and Turkey, um, that pipeline is, is going to need to run through potentially Gaza, potentially. First of all, the particular pipeline you're talking about, um, which is jointly owned uh, by it, the company itself is called EAPC. The, the E is for Elatz and the A is for Ashkelon. These are the two terminus points. Ashkelon on the Mediterranean, Elat in the Red Sea, and the PC is pipeline company. So E is now controlled by the Israeli government. The pipeline exists and it has, it was built jointly between the Israeli government and the Iranian government in the 1960s, and it was a means of Iran exporting its oil to Europe through Ashkelon. And even after the Shah fell, Israel surreptitiously and with a great deal of secrecy continued to allow Iranian oil to flow. And it was, among other things, one of the means used by, what was the guy's name, the founder of Glencore, Mark, um, um, Richie, he, he was eventually indicted for sanction busting yeah. against the Iranian regime. And he was doing the sanction busting in part through that pipeline. Now, with the uh, levying of sanctions on Russia after the invasion of Ukraine, this has all come uh, into a new focus because quite a number of ships which have exited the Bosphorus and transited the Eastern Mediterranean with cargoes of oil destined for Asia, particularly India, have discharged their cargoes at Ashkelon, and it has come out through the other end of the pipeline at Elad. Oh, really? 
Mm-hmm. And there are, it, it's interesting because it's a fairly hot issue. It's a live wire in Israel, not for political reasons, but for environmental reasons. Oh, interesting. There are environmentalist groups camped out in tents with long range cameras, etc., trained constantly on the port at Elat. And they are identifying through global data sites, etc., the ships which have all turned off their transponders and they're sailing under no flag. But these Israeli environmental groups are tracking their cargoes because there is a government, Israeli government limit on the volumes of oil that are allowed annually to pass through that pipe. Uh, and it is the belief of the environmental groups, and they're in the process of trying to demonstrate and document it, that the traffic that is going through that EAPC is handling far exceed that uh, government limit. Hmm. Now, another aspect of this is that there was an agreement signed in 2020, I think, between the UAE and Israel, which envisioned the use of that pipeline by the UAE begin exporting some of its 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 gas rather than oil in, in, in the UAE case. At last I read about it, that's what I thought they were gonna do. And and because because of everything that's now happened uh in Gaza, that's all been shoved to the side. Whether that and that was obviously part of the Abraham Accords, it was one of the things that the UAE was going to get out of the Abraham Accord deal was the ability to use that infrastructure. I think a more interesting issue around the the question you, you pose is what, what role do energy resources hmm. play in this big drama in the region? People know that 10 or more years ago, a very large series of gas fields were discovered offshore Israel, um, which collectively go by the name Leviathan. And at more or less the same time, gas was discovered offshore Gaza. And there are agreements in place between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, not Hamas, um, with respect to the maritime boundaries or the jurisdiction of the Gazan waters, which encompass a very large proportion of the gas which Israel is desperate to tap. Mm -hmm. Israel was traditionally an energy importer. It has, by dint of these gas discoveries, turned itself around and is now a net exporter of gas, particularly to Egypt and Jordan. And these further fields, these fines, which the Israeli government has now given licenses for to six Western companies, including BP and Eni, the Italian state-owned national oil company. Those companies have drilled initial wells. It looks like there's over a trillion TCF of trillion cubic feet of gas reserves, which have now been proven. And if they can be commercialized and brought to market, that would be a huge event in the Israeli economy. And some people say, I am personally not persuaded of this, but some people say that the thrust, the Israeli thrust on Gaza being as violent as it has been, is indeed about the eradication of a local population so as to allow Israel to take hold of these gas deposits, which are in law and popular understanding, at least partially owned by the Palestinian Authority. And also Hamas is making claims to some of that. 
So it's a big mess. There's, as usual, one follows the money in these stories. But there is a significant issue around gas and, to some extent, oil. There, By the way, there is also significant gas in the West Bank. How interesting. That kind of infusion into the economy in both Israel and Gaza and the West Bank, that sounds like a, yeah. a boon for everybody. I, this is probably enough to go around for a lot of people there. And yeah. the lives of I mean, I've, I've seen estimates of what it might mean in terms of the budget of Hamas or the, the governing authority in, in Gaza that it might mean as a year. Wow. If the projects were fully developed and commercialized. Wow. And that's not including the pipeline. There's still a pipeline on top of that, right? Presumably there's additional money. No. There's potential here, and it's hard to strike a, a hopeful note here because there's still so much potential death coming here and so much more war coming. But they do through all these things. There really is an opportunity here, which seems like a once in a millennium kind of opportunity. You've got the economic backing of all these potential energy discoveries and the tapping of all these oil fields and gas fields and, and moving them around to various parts of the world, which can really support a a growing and, and well-developed West Bank and Gaza and Israel. You could actually get to a point here where there is a path to peace and lots of prosperity for everybody. Yeah, and as dynamic and fluid as the situation is in the Middle East, we've also got this ongoing drama in uh, Ukraine. And that impact, this whole energy-related equation around Israel, Gaza, West Bank, etc., in as much as it, it has forced the EU to dramatically revise all of its energy supply chain thinking. And it's as much as anything, the thirst of Europe for these incremental additional sources of gas supply that come out of Leviathan and off, offshore Gaza as anything else. It's not so much a function of conflict that's way on now in the Middle East as it is people in Berlin and Paris elsewhere sitting around thinking, how are we going to keep our people warm this winter? I, I do want to say one overarching thing, which is, I know, I know you're, you're keen to sound an optimistic note. <laughs> and, I, and I share that. I'm certainly with you all the way. But for me, what is most optimistic, or if there is optimism, <clears throat> it relates to this. You know who Rahm Emanuel is? I do know who Rahm Emanuel is, yes. Currently, the U.S. ambassador in Tokyo, previously mayor of Chicago, and a very close assistant to Barack Obama. Rahm Emanuel is supposed to have said, I don't know whether it's apocryphal, that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Because in crises, things can be done, which in normal times are virtually impossible. We may be at such a moment. And if we are, it's not because the Palestinian side of the equation. The Palestinian people have come to some new understanding of their situation, except maybe as to their level of disgust with Hamas, which can be important. I think there is probably already going on and there will continue to be real questions being asked on the Palestinian side about whether all this devastation has been worth it and who are the guys who led us into this trap. Yeah. But on the Israeli side, I think there have been some very significant um, changes of mood and changes of mind, uh, which may be the basis for optimism. And by that, I mean that I think we've now seen the implosion of uh, uh, an entire generation's thesis mm -hmm. about 
how security could be achieved and what security meant. Mm. Uh, and we have lived through 20 years or so, most of it associated with Bibi Netanyahu, in which Israelis came to feel that the Iron Dome and heavily fortified settlements with houses with safe rooms, etc., that the Palestinian issue was under control. Yeah. And that if there were diplomatic objectives to be served, they were a la Abraham Accords and go talk in Riyadh, go talk in Amman, but we can forget about or shelf uh, the Palestinian issue for the time being. I think that's been exploded. Yeah. And I think that that's as much as anything, the reason why I said at the beginning, I doubt very much that Bibi will be the interlocutor mm-hmm. for very much longer, because I think Israelis see that he sold them a policy and a vision of their security, which is no longer workable. And I think that a lot of Israelis now have come to understand something, which if you had pulled them 10 years ago, it would not have been the same. But I think now you can expect to find a very large section of Israeli public opinion, understanding that a solution has got to be found for the Palestinians. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rick Petrie as much as I did. And there is, in fact, a lot more to that conversation. And we're reserving that stuff for our premium subscribers who can subscribe at Patreon, Substack, and YouTube. So if you're a paying member at Patreon, Substack, or YouTube, you get access to that content and we should have it up in the next couple of days. If you're not a member, you should be. It's the only way we get to provide this kind of content to you, which is really fact-based, thoughtful, deep, nuanced content that really matters. Uh, it's only because of our funders. It's only because of our patrons and our members. We really need your help. So please go over to Substack, Patreon, or YouTube and become a member of our premium channel. Every minute of narratives reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative, where truth lives. One day you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative, where truth lives.